All right. Good afternoon. Nice to see you all. Some of you I've, uh, well, I haven't been here for about a year, so some of you I recognize from previous visits, but how many of you have uh, never seen me before? Nice to meet you. All right. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Nice to meet you. I already met you guys. Very good. All right. Well, this is a new place since last year. Uh, Congrats. Construction provided an opportunity. (laughs) How many know that God always has things covered? He sees what's coming before it happens. He's always uh, got something up his sleeve. And uh, the journey with the Lord is just that journey of faith is also just the journey of a discovery. And uh, you guys are on a journey as a church family. And uh, God's hand is obviously on you. And uh, every time I come, the worship team is bigger and better. Good job, guys. <laughs> it's, uh, and uh, of course, I, I hear regularly how you're doing. I, I'm bringing greetings from my wife, Glenda. She wasn't able to be on, on this trip, but uh, some of you have met her before. Uh, but we pray for you guys every week. We do. We pray for you every week. And uh, we're just excited when we hear testimonies of what God does. And uh, so even though we don't get here real often, uh, we feel like family and we know a lot of your names just because of just praying for you and wanting to know what's happening here in the church. So um, I bring you greetings from her and obviously the love of the church in uh, Portland. Uh, the church in Portland, this is one of the very few churches that have ever uh, we've ever given our name to. We've planted 50 churches uh, across the United States and other nations. And uh, this was one of the few times where uh, the elders said, you know what, we so believe in this vision and in your pastors, Ben and Rebecca. And, and uh, so I, I just want you to know that the mothership loves you too <laughs> and knows about you. We have 20-some elders, uh, full-time pastors. They, they pray for you uh, when we gather. Uh, so uh, then we have intercessors there as well that enjoy uh, praying for you and for what God's doing here. How many think God loves Baltimore? Kind of extra special, doesn't he? I think the Lord uh, really loves Baltimore. Obviously, our hearts have been with you through recent days and difficulties. And, uh, but uh, we're just happy that what we saw on CNN isn't the whole story of Baltimore. And kind of we knew with our connection, we knew like, okay, that's what you're showing us. But we know there's a lot of people that love Jesus. There's a lot of good there. There's a lot of opportunity. And, and uh, so... Don't worry, people in Portland uh, don't believe everything they see on CNN, okay? (laughs) They believe there's a lot of good people like you that are here that uh, make this just a wonderful place for God to be glorified. Well, I'm going to talk to you tonight about, uh, uh, I'm going to go to a chapter of the Bible, Luke chapter 15, if you want to turn there. And as Ben said, I'm a Bible teacher, been teaching the Bible for over 40 years, so uh, my... Part of my, uh, I love the whole Bible, but some of my favorite parts of the Bible are where there are stories. How many like stories? Did you like stories when you were growing up as a kid? Uh, I've always loved stories. And uh, stories, you know, are, are kind of, uh, I think since the beginning of time, stories have been an integral part of every generation. And they've been kind of a, obviously they're a means of entertainment. Anybody like uh, entertaining stories, maybe like to see a movie or read a book or something, you know, it has an entertaining story. Uh, But stories are more than entertainment. They're actually vehicles to, uh, whoops, that's not the, there we go. They're actually vehicles to carry important values and lessons from one generation to another. And the Bible has a lot of stories in it. 
And Jesus particularly told a lot of stories. I'll talk about that in just a minute. When you, uh, you know, when you think about how children love stories, uh, this afternoon I was uh, sat down with Gideon. I said, Gideon, do you know what I'm going to, because I said, have you ever heard me preach? He said, oh, maybe once. You know, I said, well, I know you're always in kids' church. What do you, uh, you want to know what I'm going to talk about today? He was like, sure. So he came and sat on the couch and and I told him, I'm, I'm going to talk about three stories from the Bible in Luke chapter 15. And so I told him the stories, and then I asked him, you know, what's the lesson of the story? And he nailed it. <laughs> he knew the lesson of the story. So it was pretty cool. And I I've, uh, think back in Sunday school days when, uh, uh, you know, the, the teacher would tell us a story and then would always ask us this question. You know what the question is? What's the lesson of the story? Anybody remember that? You know, what's the lesson of the story? And uh, so I've kind of collected some of these through the years. And there was one uh, one time the, the teacher's telling the story of Jonah and the whale. And she says, uh, Timmy, what's the lesson of the story? And Timmy said, people make whales throw up. <laughs> that, that's what he got out of that story. I, I guess that's true, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. You know? Another time, uh, the David and Goliath was the story. And, and I don't remember the boy's name. I read about this uh, Teacher asked, you know, a little boy raised his hand, what's the lesson, you know, behind the story of uh, David and Goliath? And he said, well, Saul's soldiers thought that Goliath was too big to kill, but David thought he was too big to miss. (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes kids really get it, don't they? (laughs) Like, Like that time. Well, maybe when you were growing up, there were stories that, you know, you were fond of. Anybody remember the story of the ugly duckling? Anybody remember that? Uh, the three little pigs. I don't know what the lesson of that is, but anyway, you know, just anyway, wolves are bad, I guess. You know, is the lesson of that story. You know, you get Charlotte's Web. One of my favorites was the engine that you know thought he could. Remember the little engine? I think I can. I think I can. Okay. Well, some of you, some of you, some of you are relating to my my childhood here, but uh, I, the greatest story of all, though, obviously, was written by God Himself. And we always do the play on words, history as his story. It only works in English. It doesn't work in other languages. But but really, his story is the greatest story. And Jesus, of course, really told a lot of stories. Stories are uh, have a way of touching our hearts uh, in kind of a simple and yet engaging kind of way. Uh, stories have a way of imparting truth to us, as I was just referring to. And I think this is because life is inseparable from truth. When God created reality, he created all life, and he is truth. And you really, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You really can't separate those. Life and truth are inseparable. They're eternally united. They're interwoven. Because there is no life apart from truth. And when it comes to stories here, all life illustrates truth. Everybody's life. Whether... Uh, yeah, it, whether positively or negatively, everybody's life illustrates truth. The story of your life illustrates illustrates truth. And that's why you can look at different characters in the Bible, whether they were good guys or bad guys, you know, whether they did well or they didn't. You know, their life illustrated truth. They were either a positive example of the truth of God and how, to re- how he wants us to live life, how he intended it to be lived, or they were negative examples of how not to do life. How many know you can learn from anybody? Yeah, either positively or negatively, and, and we have both of these uh, in Scripture. 
I think maybe this is part of the reason why Jesus told so many stories, not just to reach our head, but also to reach our heart and more importantly, to reach our life. He not only wants us to know the truth, he wants us to live the truth. He wants us to embrace it in our heart and then live it out in our life. Truth is meant to be lived. It's not just meant to be known. You don't just learn the truth of God so you can win Bible trivia games. You learn the truth of Scripture so you can live it out. The Word is to be made flesh. How have you noticed the Holy Spirit working on your life to give you a chance to live out truth? He's always wanting us to live more of the truth. Over one-third of Jesus' teaching was stories. And we have in the Gospels 52 stories that Jesus told that are in different you know, parables that are recorded in the Gospels. And one day they asked him, Jesus, why do you tell so many stories? Remember, his stories were pretty simple. They were about farming and you know business and you know basic life type stuff. They weren't really complicated. Uh, they were simple stories most of the time, and they were easy to relate to and understand, stories that people would understand just from their culture and their life. And they asked him once, you know, why, why do you tell so many stories? And he responded in Matthew 13, this is one account of this, and he basically gave two reasons. He said, I teach stories, and stories, of course, learning life's lessons from Jesus. He said, I teach stories to reveal truth to the humble but he also said it actually hides the truth from the proud. And you remember as the crowds would listen to Jesus, how he'd tell some simple story about the soil and the seed that's, you know, sown into four kinds of ground and some produces and some has thorns and some's heart, you know. And as he's telling that story, the people who humbly wanted to learn from him and wanted to live the truth, they were getting it. They were like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand. My heart needs to be soft towards God. I need to receive the word. Let it grow in me so it can bring... But remember, there were some other people standing around that were pretty smart guys. And they were like, say what? What is that story about? What, what, you know, they, they didn't get it. And here Jesus could use one simple story, and that story would reveal truth to the humble and hide it from the proud. So what does that tell us? When we listen to Jesus' stories, we need to have open, humble hearts. We need to come as learners, not as know-it-alls, not ready to question him and look down on him and judge his actions and motives. And by the way, you'll have no fun with God in life if you're always judging him and telling him whether you approve of his actions or not. He's God, we're not, get a clue. You know, it's like we need to let him be on the throne. We don't do so good when we bump him off and try to take over. We just need to recognize our place. And when we come to him humbly and say, you know what, you're in charge, I'm not. You're the creator, I'm not. You're the source of life, I'm not. You're the center of the universe, I'm not. When we have that kind of heart, then, wow, we can learn a lot from him. And our life can be so much better. Well, I said we're going to go to... uh, uh, Matthew chapter 15, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 15. So let's go there. Luke 15 is known uh, for a very uh, specific story, and it's in the latter part of the chapter, but there's two stories before it. And I'm actually going to do all three of these stories quickly because Jesus tied them together and told all three of them in the same context for a very specific reason. The story at the end of the chapter is known as the story of the prodigal son. Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, if you've been around the Bible much, or, you know, this is a, a, a lot of uh, literary type people say it's, the, uh, it's one of the greatest short stories in the world. Uh, literary greats, which I'm not, but, you know, they, a lot of them will say this is one of the greatest short stories 
existing anywhere in the world is the story of the prodigal son. They may not believe the Bible or think that, you know, you know, they surrender their life to it, but it's just this great story. Have you ever thought, though, that maybe the story has the wrong title? We call it the story of the prodigal son. But really, isn't the story actually more about the father's love than it is about the son's sin? I mean, really, the story is more about the father's love because, I mean, the star of this story is not the kid who messed up and it's certainly not the older brother who was upset about it all. It's the father, the father who was so gracious and who was looking for his son to come back and didn't even let his son finish his repentance phrase and asked to be a servant till he's already putting a robe and ring on him and welcoming him back and killing the fat. I mean, the story's really about the amazing grace of the father, isn't it? And when you read the story, you, you know, it kind of depends on who you identify with, but we just were singing Amazing Grace and we were lost and now we're found. We identify with that prodigal son, right? We haven't been perfect in our life and we're so happy that the Father still loves us and receives us and blesses us in ways that we totally don't deserve. Cool story. Well, the three stories all have the same lesson. And Gideon said it today when I told him all three stories quickly. And he was remembering one of them about the sheep. He remembered that one because the first story is about the lost sheep. The second story is about the lost coin. And the third story is about the lost son. So all three stories are about something that was lost but was found. So it's a common kind of theme. And there's a difference between each one of the lost things and a difference in how each one is found. But all three stories kind of talk about actually how exciting it is when something that was lost is found. And so I asked, I told him all three stories, and I said, uh, did I uh, go past it? Sorry. Yeah, the extreme joy of the loss being found. So I asked him, okay, what's the point of the story? And he says, everybody likes it when they find things. <laughs> like, you're right, that's, that's the point of the story. Jesus said that's the point of these stories, is the, the, the extreme joy when the lost is found. So I want to, I'm kind of entitled this message today, The Greatest Joy. We all want to be happy. Nobody wants to be depressed and sad all the time. You know, we're searching for happiness or one of our documents tells us it's a right that we have. You know, we're, we're always pursuing it, you know, and, but who invented happiness? Who invented joy? God did. If he didn't know joy, we wouldn't. If he didn't have the capacity for it, we wouldn't. So joy starts with God. He invented it in the first place, and he knows what not only makes him happy, but he knows as he's created us what, we have the, what will make us the happiest. What will make us the happiest is the joy of when something that is lost is found. When a person comes to Christ and is no longer lost in their sin and selfishness, and finds grace and forgiveness and peace and a brand new life in Jesus, that's the greatest joy. Angels are partying in heaven. It says it after this two of these stories in, cha- in this chapter. Everybody parties when the lost is found. It's the greatest joy. Now, it's not the only reason par- party, people party on earth. They party for stupid reasons. <laughs> Any kind of reasons. Have you ever just invented a reason to have a party? You know, it's like we, we enjoy parties. But sometimes our reasons are pretty lame. You know, we, our staff 
these are not lame reasons, it's not an example of being lame, but our staff, we, we have a lunch together every Wednesday, and then we have our staff meeting, et cetera, and there's a couple dozen of us, and and we sit around a big table, and it's in the, off to the side in the cafeteria, just once a week we do this. And whenever somebody's going to have a birthday, then, you know, we bring the bring in some special dessert, you know, and really enjoy it. So if nobody's having a birthday, we're like, okay, what's another reason to have dessert today? You know, it's like you keep wanting inventing reasons, you know, to have that special occasion kind of feel. Well, <clears throat> I want to go to the situation here where Jesus told these stories, because this is pretty important for us. The situation, it says in Luke 15, verse 2, is that the Pharisees were complaining that he was associating with sinful people. Now, the Pharisees were super religious people who weren't very happy. And the reason they weren't very happy is they weren't very humble and they weren't very godly. They were trying hard to be better than other people, but they had so much prejudice, there was so much um, pride in their life that they just, they just were never happy. And so they're upset at Jesus because he's having a good time with sinners. And they're like, now Jesus wasn't sinning. He wasn't participating in their sin, but he was reaching out in his love and kindness to people. And he said, look, it's the sick that need a doctor. That's who I came for. What are you guys upset about? You know, so he's reaching out to people that they disdained and that they were prejudiced against. They looked down on because they were so insecure in how good they were. They were so insecure in their goodness because they were getting it from their own works and not from God's favor and grace and righteousness. That insecurity caused them to then want to feel better by comparing themselves with someone else. And so, like, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. So I think if I'm better than you, then maybe that makes me good enough for God, which is a dumb way to be good enough for God. Right? Because you can only be good because of the work that Jesus did on the cross where he takes your sin and clothes you in your righteousness and now you're okay. Not because you think you're better than somebody else. Well, these Pharisees were, um, they were so prejudiced against the people that Jesus was hanging about, hanging out with. They called these, this was the phrase they had for them translated into English. They called them the people of the land as though that made them less than the Pharisees who were people of heaven. They called them the people of the land, people of the earth. And I'll read you a couple of things. They, they had some rules about not associating with people that weren't as religious as them. They said, when a man is one of the people of the land, don't trust him with your money. Don't allow him to testify in court. Trust him with no secret. Do not allow him to be a guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. And do not accompany him on a long journey. That's some serious prejudice, isn't it? Just because they don't do religion the way you do, then you're gonna, you can't even trust them with a child or with money or... Pharisees were forbidden to even show or receive hospitality from somebody that wasn't as religious as them. Like, you can't even be hospitable to them and you can't let them be hospitable to you. They were discouraged from doing business with anyone who was not also a Pharisee. Like, you can't even do business with people? They were to avoid all contact. So, you got to understand this. For a strict Pharisee Jew at that time, when 
they wouldn't say, you know, Jesus says there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. What they would say is there's joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated. Their attitude, in fact, that's a saying that they had in their literature. And Jesus plays on that saying, there's joy in heaven when one sinner is wiped out. And Jesus says, no, there's joy in heaven when one sinner gets saved. How you know the heart of God is the opposite of the heart of those Pharisees who were so prejudiced against people who they thought weren't as good as them? Are you aware that there was some conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees? Yeah, it got pretty tough, right down to the death. They actually look sadistically forward to sinners being destroyed rather than being saved. Now that's who Jesus tells these three stories to. So we come first to the story of the lost sheep. And you remember this, there's a shepherd and 100 sheep and one gets lost and he leaves the 99 to go out and find the one. Kind of cool, there's a shepherd thing up there. But there's a bunch of sheep, so I guess that's the one when he got back. Anyway, <laughs> you know, the uh, shepherding in Palestine was a pretty dangerous task, uh, especially in Judea. Now, Judea is really hilly and there's a lot of steep hills and pasture land was pretty scarce, a lot of steep ravines. I mean, it's treacherous just going down from Jerusalem towards Jericho. I drove that highway a, a few years ago. I was like, whoa, that makes these stories, you know, a lot more, you know, alive. It's like, this is, this is tough terrain, you know, and, and for shepherds, it was a tough place to do shepherding. And they, they, they usually did not have restraining walls and sheep would offer wander into danger. And another thing you need to understand is that the shepherd usually didn't own the sheep. It was, the sheep usually were owned by the community. The flocks were communal, which explains why the whole town's happy when he brings the one sheep back. Because it's not just his sheep, it's his in the sense of stewardship. He calls it his sheep, but it belongs to the whole town. And a shepherd who was responsible for the town's flock, the, the responsibility was so serious that if he did lose a sheep, he had to go, even if the sheep was killed or, you know, killed by a, an animal or another an, a predator or something, he had to go at least bring back the fleece of the sheep to show the town that he hadn't ripped off the town, sold the sheep to another town. That's how serious it was to have this role as a shepherd. So the shepherd has lost the one sheep. It's not just his livelihood at stake. It's the town's flock, which this is mostly the case at that time in, in, uh, in Judea. And so what, he, what does he do? He leaves the 99 secure, but he goes after just the one. Instead of saying, well, I got 99, you know, and they'll make babies, you know, so I'll be all right. What does he do? He goes after the one, which sounds so extreme, but it shows us the heart of God. Have you ever been the one? Aren't you glad God goes after the one? You know, aren't you glad that even though you were lost, you could be found? I don't know why in Christianity we have some sayings like, uh, I found the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Who was lost? Who found who? You know, it's like, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we're, we're glad that he found us. Well, those we give up on, God goes after. And that's obviously the, one of the points of this story. Now, Jesus' statement, and you read this up here, it says, 
there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, isn't that offensive to the rest of the 99? I mean, if you're part of the 99, you're thinking, what gives? I'm the 99. I didn't wander off. I'm not costing you to go out in the dark and the cold and, you know, risk yourself on tough terrain just to find me. I didn't wander off. I'm here. I'm one of the 99. And he says, oh, there's more joy over the one. Like, well, does it count to be one of the 99? Well, I thought about this. Maybe the meaning of this is that Jesus is cluing us into the value of hev- the values of heaven. That focusing on the needs of others is more important than enjoying our own comfort. Think about it. He's telling the 99 that their focus should be on recovering the loss more than enjoying their own position. So if you're offended by this statement, you're receiving it wrong. Instead, we should be saying, I want to be like Jesus. Let's go after the one. Rather than, we're here. We're okay. What's the problem? No, our focus should be, if you're part of the 99, you're supposed to care about the lost. And if you don't care about the loss, you don't understand the meaning of even being a part of the 99. And what will really cause great joy. Actually, going after the one lost affirms the value of the 99, because if any of the other of the 99 would be lost, he'd go after them too. So those of us that are found need to get over ourselves and get focused on what Jesus is focused on, and that's the ones that are lost. Instead of, we are the 99. (laughs) Great. What are you going to be happy about next? The one that's lost, that's found. And the shepherd comes back, the sheep around his shoulders. And what does it say? The whole town rejoices with the shepherd, obviously, because they have stock in the sheep as well. But why is there such great rejoicing in heaven? Because the lost was found. Next story is the lost coin. You'll see in Luke 15, 10, there's joy, and it's the same kind of point. Now, this story, I'll do it very quickly. A woman loses a coin in her house. But the detail that's given is very specific. It's a certain kind of coin, a silver drachma, which is worth more than a day's wages. And it says that she had 10 of them, but she lost one of them. Now, the fact that she had 10 suggests that just, just this wasn't just coins in the purse. This was actually the custom in that day when a girl was getting ready to get married is she would over time and her family would help her collect 10 of these silver coins. Sometimes, depending on their station in life and livelihood, it would take quite some time for her to collect these 10 coins, which were then made into a silver, encased in silver headdress that she would wear on her wedding day. So the 10 coins... This is the only application where 10 coins were used. So when she loses one of the 10, in, in today's society and culture, it would be like a wife losing her wedding ring or losing a big diamond out of it. Now, how do you know that just losing a dime is different than losing a diamond? Or just losing a coin is different than losing your wedding ring. So the cultural significance of this woman losing this coin is like losing her wedding ring. And that's why her neighbors are involved. That's why she's like, I got to find this coin. 
Houses in that day, so she lights a candle and sweeps the floor. Like, what's that all about? Well, houses in that day didn't have many windows. Most houses in Judea at this time would have maybe one window, only 18 inches in diameter somewhere in the house. Houses weren't very big either. And their floors often had a lot of thatch or straw on it. So this is like looking for a diamond in a haystack with a candle. You've got to be serious to want to find that coin. Have you ever dropped a penny? It's like, yeah, it's a penny, let it go. Oh, this is her wedding ring. So she sweeps and searches in the candle until she finds And then she finds it. You pick up a dime. You don't call all your friends and party. You don't start texting everybody, I found a dime. You lose your wedding ring, you might tell your girlfriends. And you find it, you might be like, I found it. Thank you for praying. Everybody tracking with this? So what's, what's the point of this story? It's the same as the previous one, even though the lost was very different. You see, the Pharisees could never conceive of a God who would go out searching for sinners. In their view, you don't go searching for sinners. You just hope they never knock on your door. You don't do this diligent search and put yourself out and engage other people to help you. It's like... They, they, they would be blaming the woman for losing the coin. You idiot, why'd you lose it? You know, it's like, that's the Pharisee attitude. What is our attitude towards the person that's lost? Well, man, you sure screwed up your life, didn't you? Or are we like, let me help you be found. Let's recover what's valuable here. Now, the last story, and I'll just do our last few minutes on it, is the lost son. And we have three parts to this. We have the son's selfishness, the father's response, and then, of course, you have the older brother, which is like the Pharisees. You know the story. By Jewish law, the father was required to give the older son two-thirds and the younger son one-third. The oldest son in a family got a double portion of the inheritance because it was his responsibility to take care of any unmarried sisters and mother if she was a widow, etc. So the older son gets double portion. The younger son in this story, and, and by the way, it was not unusual in that day for the father to divide up his state before he act, his estate before he actually died. So uh, it was kind of like retiring, you run the farm now, you know, that, that kind of a thing. So when the younger uh, son says, I, I want the part of the estate that I'm going to get anyway, he's not saying, I want you to hurry up and die so I can get my inheritance. He's just like, why don't you let me have my part now? And he persists. Normally a father would, would just decide that he wants to make sure the son's old enough and mature enough before he would pass it on. But in this case, he persists until the father gives in. He doesn't lack any restraint. He burns through the inheritance very quickly and ironically ends up feeding pigs. You know what? The Jews had a law for this, which the Pharisees would have known well. They had a, a rule that said, cursed is he who feeds pigs. You know, the Jews aren't into pigs. Aware of that? Okay. So back then it was like, so the fact, and so Jesus purposely tells this story about the son who loses everything and the father's, you know, let's see, the father's loss and the son's loss. And now the son's just feeding pigs. Then he comes to his senses and says, hey, even my father's servants have it better than this. I'll go home and just maybe, you know, have, have my father reinstate me as a servant, not necessarily a son. And comes to his, you know, Senses and, and by the way, his plan was to ask to be one of the hired servants. There were two levels of servants at that time. 
there was a level of servant that was actually treated as a member of the family. And then there were the day laborers or just the hired hands that were not treated as members of the family, like they weren't around perpetually. They were just maybe employed temporarily or for a certain period of time. So he's, they could even be dismissed at the end of any given day. And that's the level he is going to go back and ask for with the language that's used in the parable here. He's like, maybe I could just be, get hired on for a day or two to eat something better around my father's table. He wasn't even asking to be one of the perpetual servants that's close to the family, treated like a family member, actually given shoes. That's symbolic of a certain status. So the father's response, and I want to close with this. He wisely let the son go, knowing he needed to learn the hard way. But he was watching for his son's return because he saw him a long ways off. He hadn't forgotten about him. He hadn't dismissed him from his mind. He was actually waiting for the day he'd come back, hoping it would happen. He had already forgiven his son in his heart because he never even gave his son the chance to finish the sentence about, I'm sorry, I wasted everything. Just let me be one of your servants. I mean, the, the son had this plan of what he's going to say, and he only got halfway through his speech, and the father cut him off, says, I'm just so glad you're back. Come on, let's party, and, and starts favoring him. He didn't hold his sin over him. He, was, he had already decided to forgive. You know, when uh, Abraham Lincoln was asked how he was going to treat Southerners when they finally had to be returned to the Union, etc. He said, I will treat them as if they'd never been away. Aren't you glad that our Father treats us as though we've never been away? As though we haven't ruined our lives, as though we haven't wasted everything He's given us, as though we haven't been so selfish and stupid. He honors his son with the finest robe. He gives him a ring, which means trust him with authority. A ring is a signet ring. It's kind of like having power of attorney in that day. So he gives him the ring. He gives him shoes, which were only given to family members and the closest of those to the family. Throws this huge party because his son has come back from the dead. And then the older brother is all upset. His attitude of begrudging. He I've worked for you all these years. Like, I guess he wasn't that excited about that. His rejection of it, he says, your son has returned to you. He doesn't say my brother. And he focuses on the sin. He's the one that mentions the prostitutes. The father doesn't mention that. It's the older son who says, he wasted your living with prostitutes. He's focused on the sin rather than the brightness of the redemption that's happening. Okay. So Gideon, what's the lesson of the story? If we're away from God, we can identify with the sheep, the coin, or the sun. The sheep wandered away, not intending to get lost. Sheep are just stupid. So are we sometimes. By the way, it's not a compliment when God calls a sheep in the Bible. I've got a, a young lady just uh, joined our school this fall, and she, since the age of nine, she's been a she's taken care of sheep. So I was talking to her on the way to class. I call her Jane the Shepherdess. <laughs> talking to her on the way to class, you know, and she's telling me she said, "Oh man, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. Sheep are so stupid. They're dirty. They hate taking care of it." I said, "So when you read in the Bible that God calls us sheep, it's not a compliment." She says, "No, it's not a compliment at all." 
<laughs> but even if we've been like a sheep, just kind of wandered off, being stupid, or if we're like the coin. Now, the, it was not the coin's fault it was lost. It had been misplaced. Sometimes we get lost through what somebody else has done to us. Or then you have the son who, it was his fault. He made the wrong choices. Doesn't matter whether you wander off. Doesn't matter what's been done to you. Doesn't matter what bad decisions you've been making. Guess what? Jesus is searching for you. He's sweeping the house for you. He's on the porch longing for your return. What if we are serving God? Then we should be identifying with the servant. I mean the shepherd. The woman. And the father. Do we find our greatest joy in the recovery of what has been lost? That is, people being restored to relationship with God? Or are you just proud that you're in the 99? Are we judging people, hoping they'll get what they deserve? Or are we so rejoicing when God's grace is revealed to those that don't deserve it? Are we on mission with the Great Shepherd? Are we out looking for the lost? And then when the lost is found, are we rejoicing with the angels? Okay, well, I'm sure you can party better than this, but (laughs) this is me excited. (laughs) You know, it's like, is the greatest joy in our life when we buy something new? Is the greatest joy in our life when we get our way? Is the greatest joy in our life when we put another notch in our belt of some achievement we've accomplished or something else we've collected? Or can we be like the Lord, whose greatest joy is when the lost are found? They're out there. Let's go find them. Thank you. Food and drink to enjoy, enjoy each other's company um, tonight. Uh, I think this is an excellent reminder uh, for us. And I know that uh, for many in this room, uh, you know what it is to be the found. And uh, it's just so critical that we don't get too far from that, from being the found. So we're reminded to go look, look for those others. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us. I pray.